Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon 2.0. And uh, this is going to be my shortest podcast to date, I'm pretty sure. You see, normally I, I work on these programs over the weekend, but this past weekend I traveled to Santa Barbara, California, where I participated in one of the regular events produced by the Entheomedicine community in that area. And their next community event, by the way, which will take place on the 23rd of March, well, at that event, the featured speakers are going to be Rachel Harris and Rack Razam, both of whom you've heard here in the salon as well. So, in March, if you can't make it to the Imagine Convergence and are in the Santa Barbara area on the 23rd, well, this would be a wonderful place to find the others, just like I did this past weekend. It's a really interesting community of people who are all also interested in what we can learn from psychedelic medicines, and I'm sure that you'd fit right in. Well, since I didn't return uh, until late yesterday, and since I still have tonight's psychedelic salon coming up in a few hours, and I don't have the stamina I used to have, well, I thought I'd post the first part of this recent talk I gave uh, in the event that you still haven't heard enough of me yet. But uh, next Monday, I'll get back on track with a longer program. And uh, But for right now, here is an abbreviated version of the salon. I noticed that I was going to tell you how I came out of the psychedelic closet. But I think the first thing to do is tell you how I first got into the psychedelic closet, you know. Because <laughs> uh, that's something that uh, some of you here have probably been involved in. Well, what happened is, it's 1984 pretty interesting uh, year, I guess, if you uh, read novels. And I'm in Dallas, Texas. I'm the president of a computer company. I'm a 42-year-old Irish Catholic Republican lawyer, and I had never even smoked pot. I'd never done anything. So long story short, I had my first experience with MDMA, ecstasy, it was called at the time, and uh, it changed my life, that just one experience. And so I spent the next several months looking through every bookstore and and library in the Dallas area, trying to find out more about psychedelics. And back in 1984, there was no World Wide Web, and in Dallas, there was no bookstore that carried books about psychedelics. Don Juan, uh, from uh, those novels about Don Juan were the only thing, Castaneda novels. But a friend of mine came up with a mimeographed copy of a speech. Remember mimeographed before, you know, with the smelly... And it was a speech given by Sasha Shulgin, and uh, I suspect a lot of people here know who Sasha was. He, was, uh, he probably invented more psychoactive chemicals uh, than the rest of all the chemists combined have done so far. It was just amazing what he's done. And then he published it all in the public domain. Well, they gave me this talk that he had written, or he, he gave, and it's, it was titled, Why I Do What I Do. And it was a really moving talk about psychedelics. And actually, at this point in time, I'd only had MDMA, which isn't really even a psychedelic. But that talk just so moved me, it changed my life. Now, that talk was given in 1983, just a year earlier. And the word psychedelic was really kind of toxic, especially in Texas. But this was a conference on psychedelics. It was in the title, and it was at UC Santa Barbara. 
And from that moment on, Santa Barbara has become my ground zero for the psychedelic community. If there's a psychedelic renaissance, it started here. That, <laughs> I remember, think about 1983. You know, it was pretty conservative years. And at that conference, not only Sasha, Albert Hoffman was there, Richard Evans Schultes, a whole bunch of other just really big-name people. And uh, the woman who is now my wife, I didn't meet her until 99, but... She was there in 1983, and uh, I, her, the boyfriend at the time is a friend of mine now, too. The two of them both told me they didn't remember Sasha's talk. They didn't remember Hoffman. They didn't remember Schultes. They only remembered that one of the main speakers had canceled out, and the MC got up and said, well, there's going to be this new guy. Uh, and everybody's, oh, so-and-so didn't show up. And he said, well, you're going to like this guy. He's, he's different. It was the first major public appearance of Terrence McKenna. <laughs> so... That is Santa Barbara. That is ground zero. And those two talks, uh, Sasha Shulgin's talk and Terrence McKenna's talk from the 1983 conference, are in my podcast number 100, and you can download it or stream it, whatever you'd like. But you can hear those two talks from back then and, and really get your psychedelic roots from here. So when Matt Talamary got a hold of me to come tonight, uh, I, uh, you had a speaker that had an emergency, couldn't come. Well, he knew that uh, for the last five or six years, and if you've listened to my podcast, you know I've been a hermit. And in the last uh, uh, almost six years now, I only left San Diego County one other time. And uh, that was September, actually. <laughs> so he didn't think I would come here, but he didn't know my connection, mystical connection to Santa Barbara. And he didn't know something else. Now, Matt and I have had a lot of experiences, a lot of uh, adventures. You're going to see more of him soon, I know. Uh, but one of the things that we've had some experiences in Palenque, Mexico. And the first time I went there was a result of uh, I'd gone to a conference, met Terrence McKenna for the first time, and he said, oh, you've got to go to Palenque. He didn't say it. He just said, well, you ought to go to Palenque. <laughs> but I went down to the conference in Palenque, and it ran fi Friday through Friday. And on Sunday, Christian Reich took, a whole, took the whole group. There were uh, about 80 or 90 of us out to the ruins in Palenque. But I decided not to go. Instead, that morning, I got up early, and I uh, walked up that little dirt road on the way up to the ruins, and uh, you walk long enough, and some little kids will come out of the, the jungle and offer you mushrooms. And so uh, they wanted $10 for this big bag of mushrooms, so I gave them 20 because in Dallas it was a $100 bag. You know, So I went back, and I stayed in our, our little cabin while everybody else went up to the ruins. And I ate this bag of mushrooms. The whole bag. Now, the way I did it, in case you ever get hung up and you're in the desert or something, uh, Paul Stamets told me as long as you get it up to 160 degrees, it'll kill everything. And so I got some, some boiling water, and I just dipped them real quickly. And I got some tacos and rolled them up, and it took me over an hour to eat them. I mean, it was horrible. But, but when my roommate came back, he said, well, how was it? And, you know, that was like six hours later, and I said... I've made a hard left turn. <laughs> and I, was, I had my dream job. At the time, I was the Internet evangelist for uh, Verizon. And they flew me all over the country and the world to say the Internet's the next best thing. And it was a great job. But within six months of that conference, I had quit my job and moved to the coast. Uh, it was a hard left turn. And I also found out when I returned home that that was the day that my granddaughter was born, my first granddaughter. So I had become a grandfather and made a hard left turn. Now, some of you uh, probably remember uh, the Beatles, Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Heart Club Band. 
The way it starts out, if you remember, it was 20 years ago today. Well, my hard left turn was 20 years ago today. And so, how could I not come, you know? I had to be here. Now, you know, when, when you plan these things and they say, what are you going to talk about? I, I said, well, I'll talk about finding the others. And fortunately, Jacqueline was able to <laughs> come up with something a little better because it's pretty obvious that you have found the others, right? I mean, we're here. So what, is, what does it mean today to start building a psychedelic community? See, it was Timothy Leary who first said, find the others, but that was back in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s before the internet, the, the, well, before the World Wide Web. And that has really changed a lot about finding the others. I suspect many of us wouldn't be here tonight if it wasn't for connections we'd made through the internet. So finding the others has really moved into building community but it was Tim Leary who once who started the whole thing. Uh, Terrence McKenna gets credit for saying it, but uh, they're, they're, I've seen the video where uh, uh, they they had a conversation. I think it was the only time they met, and uh, uh, Terrence did say, "Okay, well, yeah, I didn't get it from you. I got it from you." And uh, Timothy Leary didn't think he'd said it, but the whole quote is kind of long. But it begins, "Admit it, you aren't like everyone else. Trust your instinct. Do the unexpected and find the others." Well. That was uh, kind of dicey back uh, in the 80s, you know, because uh, you couldn't really talk about these things. The, the man I traveled to Palenque with, I worked with, and he and I had lunch every day for every work week day for almost a year before we admitted to one another that we smoked pot. That's how, that's how tense things were, you know, in the work world, and I don't have to explain it to those of you who are still stuck in it. So... Uh, it was, it was a little dicey to talk about these things. You had to go about sneaky ways to find the others. And, and that was sort of the mentality I've been in for a long time. But it's really no longer about that. It's about building our community. We have found that there are a lot of the others. When the last conference that Terrence gave was in Hawaii, and I was, uh, my wife and I went, and we met this man who was a professor emeritus of criminal law at Long Beach State. And he's the one that founded that, that, college where they send all the L.A. troopers through it, and, you know, it's a really heavy-duty criminal law. Gates went through there and everything. Well, he and his wife were there, and <laughs> at the time, I thought, oh, they're cute little people. They're in their early 80s, you know. Well, I'm only three years away from there now, so <laughs> I, I don't think of them as cute little old people anymore. Uh, <laughs> but, but he had written this, this uh, little essay that I published on my website, he and his wife were still doing acid in their 80s, and he was this really pillar of the community guy, and he wrote this, this essay about if everyone who used an illegal substance in the last six months, if their ears turned green, well, you would see green ears on, and he listed at least 50 <laughs> occupations, almost everybody you could imagine, you know, and that really got me thinking, and, and yet I still didn't want to stretch out too much, you know, it's kind of difficult and dangerous, but my, uh, my uh, I wouldn't call him my, my mentor, he was a close friend, but my, uh, the guy who really got me into uh, coming out of the closet was Myron Stoleroff, and uh, some of you, in, in fact, uh, Michael and I were just talking about Myron, he was a mutual friend, and uh, Michael knew him a lot longer than I did, but Myron would Gene, his wife, told me that they would catch planes, uh, leave from uh, his daughter's house in Burbank and take a shuttle to the airport. She said every time he got in the shuttle, he would sit down, and before he even got settled, he'd turn to the guy next to him and say, what do you think about LSD? 
And, you know, a little old harmless man and smiling, you know. And he said he never failed to start a conversation. He said everybody wanted to talk about it. Everybody had an opinion, you know. And we're, we're not talking about people who have done it. We're talking about people who are interested in some of the thinking that comes from it. So, so for just a second, uh, let me talk a little bit about what I see as the word psychedelic. Now, Timothy Leary said, uh, if you're psychedelic, you think for yourself and you question authority. And I don't think there has been a better time in our history to do that. The thing is that for many years, uh, you know, I was kind of a rebel, and so for many years I thought the only authority to question was the government because they weren't letting me smoke my dope. Well, uh, the authority really is much more widespread. It's your friends, your relatives, your neighbors, your family, your coworkers, your religion, your community. Those are the, the, the ones who are really controlling our thinking because, like it or not, we're different people in different situations. At work, we have one personality, and with our family, we have another one, and with our, our parents or our children or with our friends or at church or wherever... We, we have these little different quirks to our personality where we fit in. Well, that's because we're putting filters on saying, well, in this conversation, I'd better not mention marijuana. I can't talk to this person about that because it just sets her off. And so you don't. And, and those, that's fine. I mean, that's what society's about, and we should be considerate about other people. But when you start becoming psychedelic, all the, the medicines, I think, all they do for me, I should say, is they, they start dissolving these filters that I put in that say, oh, I can't talk about this, and I shouldn't really be thinking about that, and I, oh, I don't want to go to that play, I don't want to read that book. All of these little things that we pick up, that, you know, that voice in the back of your head, it calms that voice and, and, and erases those filters. Now, not permanently, just while you're in that, that state, and then you come back, and if you do that and don't do anything afterwards, well, you're a psychedelic tourist. But if you really want to be a psychonaut, you come back and then you spend some time thinking about it. I don't know anybody who's ever done ayahuasca as a psychedelic tourist, quite frankly. I think it would be pretty tough to do. But when you come back after these experiences, if, if you can just kind of pull back and say, mm, you know what I was thinking about? Or, and sometimes it's, it's months later that something will happen. Somebody will say something or you'll hear a sound or a smell. And, and you'll trigger back to something that you thought of during the mushroom trip or the ayahuasca trip. And that's what doing psychedelics is really about. It's not the, the for me, for me I don't, it's not the same for everybody, I realize that. But for me, I found that doing the, the medicine itself is only the, the tip of the iceberg. That's where it starts. And uh, even, you know, I, I remember one time I heard Ralph Metzner say how uh, he finally had had an experience, I think it was mushrooms, and nothing had happened, and he said, well, that was it. And then like six months later, something reminded him of something that happened during that experience, and it was one of the most profound moments of his life. So we, we have these experiences, and then we, we try to work on them. We try to remember what it was like. And it's not easy, because you come back down, and then you go back to work, and you're among people who aren't in the same mindset. So that's, that's another reason I think it's important to have community and today, besides the local community, we can have worldwide community, global community. You know, some of, of, of you are my age or close to it, and, and we had pen pals. Remember that? 
And uh, I, would, I would maintain maybe three or four exchanges of letters before I couldn't, I, I lost interest, you know. It was really difficult to keep up because with email and instant messaging, you don't really have that lag time and everything. So I think we're in better communication, better touch with people. And I would also like to add one thing to Timothy Leary's uh, Think for Yourself and Question Authority. Because there's one other thing I've learned in doing psychedelics that it has done for me and that is to help me overcome my fears. And I found that, that psychedelic people in general have, have a lot better control over their fears and they don't let people stampede them and, and worry them. And, and I think the reason for that is, at least uh, in my case and I know a lot of my friends, is because the more of these experiences you have, the more fearful you are going into them. I, I've, uh, I've only done ayahuasca, you know, maybe three or four dozen times, but each time gets harder and harder. That's over a period of like 13 years now. <laughs> so, so, but I quit doing ayahuasca about three years ago because it, I, was, I was getting afraid. Uh, it was just too difficult. It's, it takes a lot of work. And I've done, I don't know how many mushroom trips, but I, what I do with mushrooms, I used to do anyhow, I'd take a cassette recorder in with me that was voice activated and then I'd make my mushroom tapes. And I've got like 20 hours of mushroom tapes that, that you know, oh, the green squiggly inside the blue cube is awesome. Yeah, there's not much that I can salvage out of them. But, <laughs> so I really haven't even listened to them in years, but they're on my desk and when I really get old, I'm gonna listen to my old mushroom tapes. <laughs> The other thing I've seen about psychedelics on many occasions is that at least while you're in that state and then in the afterglow for the hours afterwards, one of the things that seems to disappear is evidence of class, class structures. You know, that, that I have I've done psychedelics with, with uh, nobility and with celebrities and stuff like that. And, you know, going in there, oh, that was so-and-so, and I was nervous, and I didn't want to talk to him and let him see how stupid I could be. And so I, I was like that. And yet, after the experience, you know, we're hugging each other, and we're old buddies and stuff like that. I think that, that the, the psychedelics aren't for everybody. I would, I would be shocked if more than 10 to 15% of the population would ever really participate in psychedelics. And our role, I don't think, as psychedelic community, is, isn't to talk people into using them or experiencing it. It's to let them know what it's done for us. And today, it's more important than ever, not necessarily with psychedelics so much as with MDMA, that the work that MAPS has done with MDMA and PTSD is awesome. I'm a Vietnam vet. I've got a lot of friends with PTSD, and I've had a little touch of it myself, and I've worked with MDMA, and it's amazing what it does. I know there, the opioid ep epidemic is huge, of course. You know that last year, more people died from opioid overdoses than they did from car accidents. You know, that's, that's pretty amazing. Now, uh, Ibogaine is a really, you know, almost a surefire cure for heroin, for opioids, and you know, the, the uh, last study that Dr. Grobe did here in, in LA, at UCLA, uh, it was with using MDMA with high-functioning autistic people. And, and these are people who don't want to, quote, get cured of autism. They, they really appreciate the gifts that they have that are extraordinary, but they want to be able to interact with, with us uh, people who don't quite work on that plane. And this has been a really effective study. 
Now, the study for PTSD is, is so important, not just for military vets. How about everybody in Paradise, California? They're all suffering from PTSD. How about Santa Barbara and Santa Monica? There have been fires around these places, you know? And, and look at all of the, the shootings in the inner city. We have a nation filled with people who are really going to have some serious issues, and these medicines can help. Uh, I won't lie to you. I, I started into all this because I was having a good time. It was a lot of fun, you know? But, and, and that's the way a lot of people start, and most of them kind of dropped by the wayside afterwards. I was one of those who, I just liked it. I, I wanted to know more about it. I wanted to try more things. And so uh, at one point in time, I was involved in a study group, and we were working our way through the index of Sasha Shulgin's book. And uh, every other week, we'd get another white powder in the mail. <laughs> and then came 911. <laughs> and sending white powders through the mail was not a good idea. <laughs> so after a, a dozen or so of those experiments, that ended, or a couple dozen. But, uh, and, and another thing that, that uh, psychedelics are, are, if you want to talk about a renaissance, because you couldn't use the word psychedelic 20 years ago, now you're seeing mainstream media talking about microdosing uh, with, with LSD. Uh, and by the way, on, on my website, go to psychedelicsalon.com. You can get my books and all the podcasts and everything. Uh, and if you go down to podcast 100, you'll hear Sasha and Terrence here in Santa Barbara. But if you go to my website, the book, The Spirit of the Internet, you can get that one and download it for free in PDF format. And I wrote that while I was microdosing. Uh, <laughs> these medicines are good for a lot of things. But what, what I'd like to mention a little bit tonight is to talk about the ways that psychedelic community can help our friends. And I used to think of the psychedelic community as like the, the mycelium and the forest floor that was underneath that provided all the nutrients and held everything together. And, and that metaphor worked while I was still trying to find the others. But now that there are so many others that are popping up and not afraid to talk about these things and, and think about them, that I've, I've come up with a new metaphor. You probably won't like it. It's probably not politically correct. But if you think of us sapiens, not, not humans, I think of the, the species sapien, just because there may be other humans coming around here. But if you think of all of us, we're up on a big plane, and it's like a huge troop of great apes, and we're just kind of milling around. And, and you ever see those old cowboy films, the westerns, and you have a herd of cattle, you know, and in the middle of the night, all of a sudden, there'll be a noise, and it'll spook them, and the whole thing will stampede. Well, we're all up on this great plane, and there's a cliff over here of environmental destruction, and a cliff over here of nuclear war, and a cliff over here of racism, and all of these cliffs, and, and people are trying to get the whole herd to go over a cliff. Our role is to keep them calm, keep them calm. A good example, in my case, a friend of mine, a couple months ago, you know, uh, President Bonespurs decided that we were being invaded by, by a bunch of, of people escaping terror, and so he sent the, the army down here to the border. Well, I have a friend up in the Northeast who is uh, not psychedelic. He's a big Fox News fan. And he called and offered for my family and I to come up and live with him until the, the, the war on the border was over. <laughs> well, you know, I live in San Diego, and uh, 
I'm less than 30 miles from the border. In fact, my wife was in Tijuana today meeting with the Mexican government officials, uh, getting, uh, filling out uh, procedures that she and her compatriots are opening a medical marijuana clinic down there because the one that they'd been running got shut down after Prop 64. They changed all the rules in California. And after several years of doing this with hundreds of patients, they've had to shut down, and so they're moving it all down to Mexico now. So that's no crisis at the border that I can see. And I, 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 I saw my role as, as a, a person who thinks psychedelically. I think for myself, I question authority, and I've overcome a lot of my fears. And so I was able to calm him down. And after that was over, I got thinking about Terrence McKenna's idea of the perfect sitter for a psychedelic experience. He said, the perfect sitter is somebody where you're having an experience in a room. And by the way, he uses the word sitter, and I agree with him, as opposed to guide. I am very much against people guiding a psychedelic experience. You need to have your own experience and not somebody else's. That's just a little side from a grumpy old man. Uh, so Terrence's idea of a guide is the, the person taking the psychedelics in one room, the guide is two or three doors down the hallway in a different room. And a person, all of a sudden, if you're having an experience and you get in difficulty and you're having a problem, you pick up a little Tibetan bell and ring it, and your sitter comes down the hall and pokes her or his head in the doorway and says, it's okay, you took a drug, you'll be back to normal in a couple hours. <laughs> Shuts the door and goes away. That's what we need to do for the rest of the country, you know? Hey, now, I have to admit, I, in my darker hours, I, I don't think that uh, we're going to go back to anything new normal. I, I think that my childhood uh, nursery rhyme, uh, all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty, Humpty back together again, and we may be approaching that, which is even more important about establishing community. So I... I uh, wasn't able to establish much of a community in, in Tampa, Florida, because there was only one other guy my age that I knew was doing psychedelics. And he was my traveling companion to go to Palenque. So after the Palenque experience, six months later, I, I uh, moved out to the coast and, and started really getting into the swing of things. And that's actually where Michael and I first met at Kathleen's Salon. There was a, a major salon in the L.A. area that uh, was really uh, quite interesting for many years. And so I started meeting people there and, and, and getting out a little bit. And then uh, through that, I wound up with Burning Man. And it wasn't so difficult out in the West Coast to talk about psychedelics. When I'd fly back to Florida and visit my children and grandchildren, uh, I had to be really kind of circumspect because uh, none of them approved of what I was doing. <laughs> and I think we've all had family members who looked at us askance, too. So I... I uh, I did some some uh, I did a lecture series at Burning Man and I went in 2002 for the first time and then in 2003 I decided we should have a full scale lecture series and uh, you know they all everybody kind of laughed at me because you know it's Burning Man you, during the day you're going to have lectures so I rounded up Allison and Alex Gray and Eric Davis and Daniel Pinchbeck and uh, Bruce Damer and several others and I produced a lecture series there well. I'd recorded them all, and, and uh, this is before, before podcasting came out. And so I, I took the, the recordings, and I put them in little 10-minute segments, put them up on the Internet, and that's where they were. Well, then podcasting comes around, and a couple months after it started, I, I'm a geek, so I played with the technology. And I podcast number one was a, a talk that I gave at Mind States in 2001. 
And I thought, oh, okay, I kind of know how this works. And, and you have an RSS feed, which is a channel, more or less. And so I named my channel the Psychedelic Salon only because I didn't think I was going to be doing this more than one or two times. And I had been doing a psychedelic salon. My Bruce Damer and I have this software <laughs> that's a voice uh, software over the Internet, and it has like a tenth of a second delay, so we couldn't commercialize it. But it's more secure than the red phone on the president's desk. It's really secure. So I was holding this salon with uh, some of you know who Nick Sand was, the guy that invented the Orange Sunshine. So Nick and I and three or four other people would get together every Wednesday night and, and in the psychedelicsalon.com, which is the URL I had at the time. And so I just put Psychedelic Salon for the RSS feed, figuring every time I had to have a different one. So the next week I was going to do another one. I do one of Terrence's talk. And I realized, oh, it, you just keep the same one. And so I started doing this and that and the other thing. And over time, uh, it just started growing. And then I, I found a RSS feed channel that was a little better and so I started a second one, the same program on two channels. Well, now I've got four or five, if you count SoundCloud. And they're all, you know, none of them are, are overlaps. They're all different people. But on top of that, there these people mirror my podcast. And so there's all of these, these servers that, that mirror them. So I actually have no idea how many people listen to my podcast. I don't keep any logs or records because a lot of my listeners are, you know, early, late teens, early 20s, and, and I don't want any tracking. So, John you know, Gilmore helped me. He's the co-founder of EFF, Electronic Frontier Foundation, and he's been one of my speakers. And he helped me uh, build it up to and make sure that it's not trackable. I don't use Google Ads. I've never had any advertising. It's just a, a, it's a platform I'm going to turn over to the community here in a few years. And so I just want it to be commercial free, and I didn't do anything. I don't track the logs, but that second feed that I started a year or so after the first one had some things built into it, and it tells how many, how many files were downloaded, but more importantly, it tells how many unique individuals have downloaded something. And on that one feed, like I say, it's, it's not the... I'm sure the number is bigger, but on that one feed, uh, I haven't looked in a couple of years, but after the first 12 years, there had been over 30 million unique listeners... This community is large. I think that the, my audience maybe is twice as big as that. And, you know, you, I, can't, I can't get my head around that. So when I do my podcast, I'm in my little bedroom, and I'm talking to one person. And that's usually the last person I've talked to or something, you know, or maybe one of you that I met tonight. Probably uh, the next podcast, it'll be Aurora. I might be thinking of you. But I, I try, to, try to just think of one person because you can't. Think you, you can't play to that audience. And so lately, I have uh, moved it to where, in addition to my regular podcast and everything, I've, I've started on Patreon, which you can see, you can support here. For $1 a month, I'm doing hosting a live psychedelic salon on Monday nights. And it's, it's not really big. Uh, there's only like 350 people, and 10% of them show up. But what I've learned is I've started doing my interviews there because you've got all these other people can ask questions because I don't like doing interviews. I don't think I'm very good at it. So now I've got all the help. So my building of the community is what I'm doing is podcasting because I'm a hermit. You know, I, I, uh, I have trouble coming out in public like this. I used to travel for the corporate for Verizon, and I was flying everywhere. And I've gotten where I just like to stay home. But this, this uh, live feed every Monday night has been really great 
because uh, some of these people, I've been doing it for a year now, and some of these people are, are old friends, like Kevin is, uh, he's, he's a, a trucker, and he's, he's <laughs> driving, you can see the road going by in the way, he's in the middle of the country driving at night, and uh, we have, we've had uh, Nikita from uh, St. Petersburg, Russia, uh, Trevor comes in from New Zealand on his lunch break, uh, you know, we do it at 6.30 on Monday night, so it's really tough for people in Europe, but we've had people from all over Europe. The one that really impressed me, a, a man one night joined us from Slovenia. And uh, the next day I actually had to go, I, I kind of knew where Slovenia was, and I, I had to go look it up, and now I'd love to go there. It looks like an incredible place. But Slovenia, it's got two million people, and he had just hosted an event like this over a weekend. Think of it. You know, and I, I, I've uh, had uh, people from Croatia get a hold of me. Give me uh, pictures of their conferences with hundreds of people at them. This is huge worldwide. And it all started here in Santa Barbara, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. So what can you do to build community? We're, we'll take questions here in just a second. But how can, can you build community stretching out from here? Uh, one of the things I would encourage you to do is, is uh, maybe tomorrow, email a couple of your friends and say, Man, they've got this, this group going here in, in uh, Santa Barbara. It's only been going a little over a year. You could start one where you are. I bet you they would tell you what they did and help you. you know, we need to spread this kind of event where people can get together face-to-face. And then, afterwards, we can stretch out to the, the rest of the, uh, the world. And I would be willing to bet in my audience, which is big, I would say, based on emails that I've received that probably 25% of the people have never used a psychedelic and don't intend to because of fear, mainly, and I don't blame them. So it's about consciousness and talking about what you learn when you can get rid of the filters. Now, one other thing I would suggest you do is before you leave tonight, introduce yourself to one person that you don't know yet. And I'll tell you what sometimes can come from that. Two or no, maybe three days after my hard left turn in Palenque, we had community breakfast. I'm sitting at a table with six or seven other people, and there were two empty seats, and these two women came and sat down, and everybody seemed to know everybody, except I didn't know them. And so I said, Oh, I'm I was Larry then. I'm Larry Haggerty. I've changed my name to Lorenzo, it works better. But I introduced myself to these two women, and uh, that one woman who was in Mexico today and I are going to have our 20th wedding anniversary in October. So maybe you want to introduce yourself to somebody here tonight. <laughs> and let me just, let me just say one, one thing. I'm going over my time, I guess. But Alan is going to be talking about psychedelics and Buddhism. My psychedelic mentor was Myron Stoloroff in many ways. And he wrote articles about psychedelics and Buddhism. And he was mentioned in Dvorak's book, uh, uh, what the Dormouse said, as one of the four most important people in the computer revolution, because he ran the Menlo Park Clinic where everybody from the uh, Homebrew Computer Club and uh, Xerox Park, lots of them were part of that 350 people who were trained with LSD to be more creative. (laughs) You can tell that I've been off the road for a long time. And I'll, I'll tell you one of the reasons I did that is that for many, many years, it was only old white men up on the stage. And I took that to heart uh, several years ago. Uh, a couple of people said, 
uh, I was on a panel with three or four people. <laughs> we were all men. I was maybe the oldest one, but uh, some, some uh, young woman uh, stood up and said, when are we going to hear from the ladies? You're all old white men. We don't care what you say. <laughs> and, and so, I, you know what? She had a really good point. And it's been re- very hard to recruit women to talk about psychedelics up until recently. That's changing now. But the reason is, and, and is because women really are the responsible ones for the children. And if you are openly psychedelic and you have young children, you can lose them. And so you can't blame women, for, and men too, for not talking about it. But now, as these children are entering their 20s and 30s, the women, like Kat Harrison and people like that, are coming out. And one that has uh, helped me a lot in the salon is Shauna Holm. Shauna is uh, mid-50s, two teenage daughters. She's a medicine woman. And she's done like uh, 20 or so podcasts for me. Uh, some of them were speeches that she's given herself. And, but she, she does, uh, she, she interviews women and medicine women. And she speaks at conferences everywhere. And I found that, that by finally spreading out and, and almost dragging some of these women in, and now there's a women's congress and there's a lot of other psychedelic events for women. I think that finally, and probably within less than 10 years, we're going to have an even 50-50 balance. I think that, that that's the next big thing you're going to see in the psychedelic community is more and more women taking the lead. And when that happens, I think, is when we can really start talking more intelligently about uh, educating children, uh, bringing... Eventually, I'd like to see talking about psychedelics in schools and drug education, you know. Uh, teach them how to do it, you know, because they're going to do it, you know. You did it. <laughs> and we're, we're in a strange situation. I just, I just bought some pot uh, from my medical marijuana supplier, and I, I've got the thing here. I can't believe it says this. On the label, government warning. This product contains cannabis, a Schedule One controlled substance. Keep out of the reach of children and animals. Well, in between that, a Schedule One controlled substance, 30 years in prison for this, you know? And how are we going to raise the kids to respect a government that puts a warning like that on something that they're selling you over the counter, you know? It's, it's all upside down, and I'm upside down now. I've got a timeout thing, so we're going to shift speakers. I, I should have got a better uh, uh, clue as to how this program is going to go, because I thought we are going to do questions right away, so I apologize for that confusion. And uh, Alan, who is going to come up, I carried my book up here, Zig Zag Zen. I have a first edition hard copy that Myron Stolaroff and I looked at together. So uh, uh, I will get out of the way now and turn it over to the rest of you. Thank you for your attention. I appreciate it. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. Well, as much as I'd like to continue here with you a little longer today... I've got to get to work on the post-production of this podcast and get it posted and then get ready for tonight's live salon. So for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.